Welcome to Engage Arizona. Public policy affects all of our lives, often in very profound ways. One of Center for Arizona Policy's main objectives is to inform and educate Arizonans about what's going on at the state capitol and in local governments that impact their lives. If you care about the preborn and their mothers, your rights as a parent, what freedoms are at risk, or how new laws touch your family, we're talking about it. And we invite you to join us as we discuss the latest developments you are not likely to learn from local and national news. Join us now as we unpack the week's developments in Arizona public policy. Welcome to Engage Arizona. I'm Cindy Dahlgren, here with CAP President Kathy Harrod and VP of Policy Lisa Brugg. We're discussing a very busy week this past week at the state capitol. Some wins, no real losses, a snag though on our main life bill. Senate Bill 1457. We talked about that in depth last week, uh, but we had a little problem in uh, in hearing this week. Uh, one legislator unexpectedly showed some uh, maybe, maybe concerns. Some, yeah, some concerns. A little bit of opposition to the bill, but nothing we can't address. You know, that's the legislative process that we approach it. Okay, what problems can we solve? And then uh, you know, some people often say. You don't want to see sausage being made. You also don't want to see legislation <laughs> being made often. And that's, that's the stage that we're at, is that we do have some concerns being raised about the ban on genetic abnormalities, about uh, what I think is a false claim about whether it would impact the medical schools and being able to place residents in the state because of a ban on any kind of taxpayer funding or, or relationship with abortion providers. So we'll be looking forward to addressing those concerns and coming to a resolution. And I feel still feel I'm very hopeful. Uh, I don't often use the word confident, but I feel very hopeful that we will get this bill to the finish line. It's just, it's going to probably have to be scaled back a little bit, but hopefully not too much. And it still has many good things, including, you know, setting forth that in Arizona, that human life is to be valued from its very moment of conception. Well, I wonder how, um, you know, how often does a bill actually start off and then finish where it started? I mean, amendments. Sometimes, um, not always, <laughs> but we certainly do like to know of changes a lot earlier in the process than sometimes we find out because then we can move together, um, you know, a little bit more solid. But these things come up um, every time on one bill or another or three. So Yeah, I often have to laugh because I remember sitting in the House Gallery one time and a member on the floor says that she knows that Center for Arizona Policy doesn't like to amend their bills. And I want to start laughing because some sessions it seems we amend every bill that we are supporting or advocating for. And uh, we're on track right now to, there's only about one of our bills that I think isn't, so far, uh, seems safe from an amendment. So we shall see. I remember, uh, wasn't it Reagan who said, you know, you got to compromise where you can, but don't compromise your standards. So you always have to be ready to work with the other side or work with people that maybe have questions about certain things. Well, and it's not always the other side. We have a family to work with as well. And when we, um, you know, get together and do that, usually we succeed, but it's not always from the other side. And it's always, it's also important to note that it's when you have, when it takes 31 votes to pass a bill out of the House and you have 31 Republicans who all profess to be pro-life, then that means if one person has a concern, they can kill the bill. And so that's why you have to address those concerns. And the same in the Senate, our margins are too tight, so we can't just ignore someone who has a concern or wants an amendment to a bill. And there's a lot in this bill. Yes, there is a lot, a lot of very good things. So it's the last week for hearings. Hallelujah. <laughs> you have no idea. Well, with the exception of the Appropriations Committees Correct. can still meet and do bills next week. But yes, for the most part, we are done with committee hearings. 
All right. So the sex ed was up this week, and you were in that hearing. It got a bit uh, cantankerous. I guess several hearings did. This has been a week for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's unfortunate because the sex ed bill, more than anything, is about parents' rights. And about it's about parents having access to sex education curriculum, having enough notice to be able to look at that curriculum, to be able to review it, and then to ensure that parents have to opt their child in to any sex education curriculum materials. That includes anything that deals with sexual orientation, gender identity, gender ideology. And it's important that parents have that right to be able to opt their child in and choose what their child will be exposed to. So really what you saw in the hearing this week was the animosity towards parents and that the LGBTQ community uh, likes to, how do I put this, likes to turn anything into an anti-LGBTQ discriminatory measure when that's not what, what it was about. It's not going to stop the curriculum in grades five and up. It simply lets let parents opt in what they are willing to have their children be exposed to. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing listening to that hearing. It just showed the disdain for parental rights and some you know, from some lawmakers anyway, and this uh, this desire to push through this agenda where people think that they know better than parents and they feel like parents are getting in the way. And uh, we saw some testimony or we heard some testimony uh, from people who have examples of maybe curricula that is questionable or that would raise anybody's eyebrows, that parents are not, not that they're not allowed to see, but they make it very difficult for parents to see. So this is just a matter of, you know, parents should know what is being taught at their school. Well, I saw them bring up the same in a simple transportation bill in a hearing. And it was, it went to that parents um, couldn't decide to put their child in a carpool. Uh, Those parents should be background checked and fingerprinted like bus drivers are just to protect the union and the schools. And so they're circumventing our parental rights. Uh, It's almost like they're subbing schools for parents. Um, They think that kids are safer there. They're safer at school than at home. It's a national narrative that that has been happening for quite a while. And they're not being transparent about it, I think, is is a big problem. And uh, one of the things that we could see if we don't stop this now, right, if we don't do this and raise awareness and get parents more involved, you know, what we could see, the comprehensive sex education and uh, other things, parents not being included. One of the things, though, um, that I saw coming out of Maryland and New Jersey, Chicago, L.A., I'm sure other places as well, is that there's a concerted effort to hide things from parents and to regarding this one in particular was regarding the puberty blockers and um, uh, hormone therapies. But before even getting there, in some places, I think it was Maryland first, where they they said they have a policy where they are um, telling educators to keep it from parents to go ahead and affirm any um, student's so-called transition and to keep it from parents. They can go ahead and they'll start using their pronouns, their preferred pronouns. They'll let them go to the restroom of the opposite sex. Well, it's a direct 14th Amendment violation (laughs) that they're promoting. And um, they haven't had to uphold much of this in court yet. And I think Kathy's going to get into some some court cases. But Well, the word that I keep hearing is that parents are a barrier. The word barrier. That parents are a barrier to the left being able to do what they want to do with our children. Thank God. 
Yeah, and so and that's why I think that's it's it's a wake up call that for the parents that are listening that you know you are certainly not a barrier that you're the protector and the the teacher of your children and that's how we look at it that you know it's up to the parents and but between the parents and God how they raise their children it's not up to the state or the schools or anyone on the left. Yeah, this this one section I wanted to read, it says, um, this policy enables Montgomery County Board of Educators, this is in Maryland, the personnel to evaluate minors about sexual matters. It allows minors at any age to transition socially to a different gender identity at school without parental notice or consent. And it requires personnel to facilitate the so-called transition with the use of the child's preferred pronouns. Yeah, that's just shocking, but um, it's happening uh, at Los Angeles, other other school districts. Um, it's a wave, and it's it's something that we need to get in front of. I think we've been trying, but we really do with prayer, um, but with citizen activists, we need to rise up. Well, and that's another reason why Senate Bill 1456 on sex education is so important, because it would not allow sex education in district or charter schools before fifth grade, because certainly those who promote comprehensive sex education, what they call it, they want to begin in kindergarten, you know, and so we're saying no in this state, nothing in kindergarten through fourth grade, and that, you know, there's significant opposition to that, but this is looking out for our children, and, you know, let, let's get back to teaching them the basics. Yeah, well, what do you say to the uh, opposition's argument, though, that, oh, in you know, in the younger grades in kindergarten and such, they're really just teaching them things like, you know, good touch, bad touch, things that will protect them from sexual assault? I think those of us who are parents who have had children in the past decade can attest to that's not true. Uh, my oldest daughter, I, I let her go um, before I really knew the curriculum, um, and therefore my ne- next daughter absolutely I opted out and she did not go because the conversations that I had with my older daughter afterwards were a lot more mature than just how to take care of herself. Mm. Interesting. One of the other things um, about this particular uh, situation and the in the article it talked about how, you know, school administrators and counseling staff, they are, if they're in a situation where, say, a girl is wants to so-called transition, so she's going to use the... Uh, the bathroom of the boy or let's make this the other way around because that's usually how it goes where the boy says he's transitioning to a girl and if a girl wants to go into the bathroom and she's uncomfortable that the staff is to counsel her mm-hmm. and not the boy and they don't notify the parents that they even have this going on correct there's no notification of parents that oh hey we have a student at the school that's use a boy that's using the girl's restroom they don't even notify the parents well the biggest concern i see too in many ways is that this is becoming a societal norm and it's becoming accepted and approved without without really looking is this a case of true gender dysphoria and I would just say to the listeners that if you need resources on this issue that we have um, two or three books that in writers that we have great respect and and believe that they are very balanced and so just you know shoot us an email at info at az policy and we'd be happy to share those resources with you exactly um we had another win though this week uh, here at state legislature with the STO and the allowable uses something 
talk about that. Yeah, that's a great bill. Um, and it was another very colorful hearing um, this week, uh, but it, it did prevail. Um, it doesn't expand the program at all. All it does is it expands the flexibility of the program for what parents can use the, the funds for. Um, extracurricular activities, band uniforms, uh, SAT, ACT tests, things that for a lot of families are, are out of reach sometimes and, and, and affordable. So it just allows them to have more flexibility with that, that you know, with that pot of money um, to use it what they need. It's amazing that there's so much pushback to something as simple as that. It, they try to point that it's expanding the program, that there's already enough money, and, and they don't take into account that that money that's in there is earmarked for those children that currently have that money so that they can continue to have it for years and years to come. It's not just in there because it's just sitting there, not used. It's already earmarked for those kids that already utilize it. So... It doesn't change at all the scholarship program that the school tuition organizations operate. So the the scholarship money that's available, that's up to how many Arizona taxpayers um, participate in the individual tax credit program and how many participate in the corporate tax credit program. So this is is scholarships. Uh, It's not going to take away from the general fund, but you can never convince the other side that hates school choice. That's why we keep fighting. All right, national news. Let's talk about South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem and how she partially vetoed the Save Women's Sports Act. Uh, sounds like she caved to pressure from NCAA. Um, she, I think she let most of it stand, am I right? But she took out the college, so she exempted the college students. She also, I think, believe exempted out the cause of action. Um, so she also, she, if I understand right, she also hurt some of the other provisions that would be for elementary and high school sports. So this is someone who was a rising star within conservative Republican circles who I was you know, personally looking forward to having come speak in Arizona sometime. And after saying that she was really excited to sign the bill, then she really gutted the bill. And then now she was on national TV this week trying to explain away what she did and how how much she supported girls and boys sports. But, okay, you can, you know, that's almost, you've got to really hear what people are saying. But are you... Are you supporting a boy that identifies as a female playing in those girls' sports? So, great, you support girls' and boys' sports, but what are you really saying? Exactly. You know, she did gut the bill. I mean, it sounds simpler than it really is, and the type of amendment that she used is usually only used for typos, Um, and she sent it back down to the legislature as though it's something that's commonly used uh, as a deflection. So I think she hurt her um, chances with her state party and her colleagues that she works so closely with um, by doing such an excellent job with the COVID rollout and the things that she did. Um, It's it's, it's unfortunate. I, I think she caved not just to the sports programs, but to the economic um, folks that, you know, are very understanding of the kind of money that those types of sporting events bring into the state. And she got spooked. Well, you know, here in Arizona, we haven't had those sorts of problems as far as getting any sporting events or, you know, we've been able to attract a lot of sporting events, you know, without having a statewide SOGI or anything else that would that would go to this same point. That's true. And it's, you know, for those who are asking, well, so why isn't Arizona doing a a law like South Dakota? Um, We tried last year and passed the House and then COVID shut down the Senate. So we did not have a chance to get it through the Arizona Senate last year. What's happened since last year is that the Idaho, Idaho did pass a, a, a um, save women's sports bill and that is before the ninth circuit court of appeals so in light of the you know, really a strategic 
decision in Arizona this year that in light of the other priorities we had for the legislative session that we're waiting to see what the Ninth Circuit does and if they uphold the Idaho law, which we hope they will, um, this probably is going to go to the U.S. Supreme Court at some point. And, you know, are the states able to say that biological males cannot participate in girls' sports? And if if we lose on that, then it's the end of women's sports, and we, we know that. And so this is really one of those causes that's very critical to be fighting right now. And a lot of states are doing it, too. I, I know, um, is it Mississippi? Mississippi's governor signed it. Um, I, I guess think Tennessee. two have been signed um, just in the last couple of weeks across the nation. Uh, whether or not they get challenged, probably. It hasn't been announced yet, but I imagine they would. I love the measured approach that we've taken, um, you know, because at the end of the day, it's a big and broader conversation about factual science as opposed to political rhetoric and how far are we willing to take that. And it, I think it's part of a larger discussion. And without some of this precedent being set, seeing how these cases are going to go, um, I think it's kind of hard to, to know the wisest uh, angle to take, I guess, or approach to take to um, going, you know, against it. And I think it doesn't it depend also where you are? I mean, so North Carolina also introduced a bill. Uh, Tennessee, the legislature passed it and went to the governor. Um, like I mentioned, I guess Mississippi's governor signed it. Doesn't matter like which circuit you're in. Well, it does. And so, for example, when the Ninth Circuit rules on the Idaho law, that will affect what's possible in Arizona. So if, if the Ninth Circuit were to say that the Idaho law is unconstitutional, then that would make it almost impossible for us to pass a similar law. It would be very difficult. We'd have to have it different, you know, have to have it structured differently. But, you know, depending on what happens with these other states, if it ends up where there's a split in the circuits, what we call a split in the circuits, so say you've got the Ninth Circuit overturning the Idaho law and you've got another circuit upholding the Tennessee or North Carolina law, then that makes it more likely that the U.S. Supreme Court takes the case. You know, that's a ways down the road, and hopefully we'll win these cases in federal district court and, and circuit courts, but, you know, this is uh, where the early stages, I guess I would say, as far as what's going to happen in the courts on these laws. Luckily, uh, in my opinion, uh, the Ninth Circuit is the most overturned, I think, in the Supreme Court That's too. True. So if it doesn't go our way, uh, we might still have a little a little luck on our side. It has changed. I mean, you know, some people are, get really excited thinking that the night that President Trump changed the Ninth Circuit, and I'm like, okay, let's wait and see. Let's mm-hmm. wait till we get some more decisions. It's certainly better than it used to be as far as um, conservative versus liberal judges, but we don't know yet. Yes, to be continued. Yes. So let's talk about cabinet confirmations. Xavier Becerra, no health experience whatsoever, (laughs) and a very radical pro-abortion stance. But Lisa, you were in California. You have some I know. Yes, I I don't know him personally as a friend, but I know of him. Um, He was in the legislature in California just for one term. Then he was 12 terms as a uh, congressman from California. Um, And ironically, when um, Kamala Harris was um, elected a senator for the state of California, she had been the attorney general. He was appointed to replace her as attorney general in California, and that's where he's been um, for a while now. So it's interesting to see that this is really just a pipeline for the progressive agenda that they've worked together for many, many years, and they needed his political voice and um, personality in one of those positions. And, and when it comes to progressive issues, a lot of them are health. <laughs> and so they put him exactly where they wanted him. I think he was a purely political choice. Yeah, well, it wasn't based on his experience or his expertise. Absolutely not. <laughs> You know, if there's one uh, 
I'm not sure the right word to use, but if there's one of the most um, tragic outcomes, that may be a little too strong language, but one of the worst outcomes of shifting from Trump to Biden is what will happen in the Federal Department of Health and Human Services, because it is absolutely flipping from being one of the most pro-life administrative bodies to being one of the most pro-abortion. And so on all sorts of issues, whether it's um, rights of conscience, whether it's abortion, whether it's end of life, that we are going to have the opposite. I mean, it's, it's almost a, a total total opposite switch. And the, the friends that I know that were in the Health and Human Services Department at, under Trump, it's just, it is tragic for them to see it all the work that they did for four years that now Becerra and the newly appointed um, Levine or Levine, however you say um, that person's name I'm not sure what to call her uh, that that is, uh, that's just of great concern and troubling and that's where um, it's hard, you know, that's just hard with the election results that what's going to happen there. And how does that affect you and me? Um, It really does. does. Sometimes we think D.C. is so far removed. But I think I was discussing um, with you earlier about I worked on a grant through HHS for four years um, to promote embryo adoption um, and donation. And it was a national program. And we were solely funded through HHS on the federal level. So it may not seem like it's affecting your day-to-day life, but it really is because all of the folks that are doing the work that you love and I love, the adoption agencies, the pro-life groups and others, even churches are not going to be getting that funding and therefore those boots are not going to be on the ground. Those programs are not going to be you know, done. Uh, the things that we love will not be promoted. In fact, it'll be the exact opposite. And even if they still show it that on the website that those programs are there, the money will not be put into them and the grants will not be written. And that's the tragedy. And I would imagine that there's more to it than that too, right? As far as how it affects us, how it affects the average American who's in charge of HHS. How does that trickle down? Well, the example of, will Planned Parenthood Arizona now be getting more taxpayer dollars for birth control? Uh, that you know, the efforts in the, of the last few years to defund Planned Parenthood, much of that federal funding was through programs that are administered by the Federal Health and Human Services Department. So that now will be changing. That I mean, as far as the efforts to defund Planned Parenthood, instead they will be in the driver's seat again getting whatever they want out of a federal agency. And so that's going to impact what happens in our state. It's going to impact what happens with women, how they're treated. Um, you know, the big concern, too, is will there be some type of a federal action to allow abortion pills to be sent through the mail. Um, those types of things that without a regard for the, the woman's health and safety. So there are a number of things that they can do. The rights of conscience is really an issue because we had very strong conscience regulations put through so that you don't have to, the healthcare professional, no one has to participate in an abortion or any kind of medical procedure really that you have a religious or moral objection to. So they, you know, they could do more to put us in our silos. Well, a lot can be done, especially if they bust the filibuster. And I know there's a little bit that is happening with that yes, behind the scenes. Yes, I just ran down the hall because I was watching the president's first uh, press conference and looking for key words and phrases um, because sometimes they don't come directly out. And I definitely got got that that's an effort that is surely being considered um, if they can't get their agenda through without it. And so that remains to be seen. Uh, but um, I would be cautious about that for sure all right well there's a lot more to talk about but we we are out of time so um we will talk about more later i know that we need to make sure that we end on a a good note that this maybe uh, can be a little bit disconcerting but it is really a call to action 
Absolutely, I would think. Yes, and I just encourage when we send out an action alert at Senate from Arizona Center for Arizona Policy, please respond to it. That we we are not um, without hope. We are not without the ability to to make some difference. And so, you know, this is still let your voice be heard. That we're not going to just roll. I just say we're not going to roll over and play dead (laughs) or throw in the towel on the culture or on politics or on public policy. That we are still here um, advocating for our beliefs and for what's for the common good. And so we continue and invite those listening to join with us. We appreciate your prayers and standing with us. Thank you for listening to Engage Arizona, public policy for daily life. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate, and give a review on any podcast platform you use. For more information, visit azpolicy.org.